Lent. And today, I've just got one brief verse to start with anyway. Just one. And that's actually it. But I want to show you the fuller version of it. So my next slide shows you the fuller version, but it's still short. And it's a simple little verse taking place in Luke chapter 9. It just says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Hmm. Now, a few verses before that one, the disciples were debating each other as to which one will have the higher status in the pending establishment of the new kingdom. Like, who's going to be greater? The disciples uh, sometimes were sort of formed like a little family after a while. And which made them kind of like siblings. And then they started to act like siblings act, which is to bicker about who's better than the other one. And that's kind of what they were doing. So it's interesting that in that context, in the context where they're, where they're having this little spat about who's greater, that, that, uh, in that in such a context as that, it would say that he, that Jesus was determined the time was getting to where he had set his sights on going to Jerusalem, and that's where he was headed. And you have to think that in the minds of the disciples, that journey to head to the, I mean, really, Jerusalem, the great capital, Jerusalem, the place of the temple, uh, the center of, of the whole Jewish history, you know, the great city, the city of God, and the seat of their local government. A lot of the, I mean, I, I think pretty much all the disciples at this point were probably thinking, yeah, let's go to Jerusalem because that's where we head to the center of power for the overthrow of the corrupt system of our day to install the reign of the Messiah to reign. The kingdom is here. Here he is among us and we're his followers. So let's go. Like a parade, like a victory parade into Jerusalem before we take the rightful power that God has given his anointed servant, the Messiah. I mean, I think that may have been going on in their mind. Maybe that's why they're thinking about who's going to be greatest. Already jockeying, you know, like for their position in the cabinet. But Jesus knew better. He knew what really was, a, was, was awaiting him. That's why he had to be determined about it. That's why he had to set his face, which is sort of the old Hebrewism. It's an old Hebrew phrase. To set your face is to say, I'm determined. I'm doing it. Anybody ever know anybody or maybe have a kid that set their face to things and you could not change their mind? It's determination. Jesus was determined. But... It wasn't easy to do. It took something from him. Now, he knew better partly because uh, the prophets had foreshadowed this. So let me read a few words from Isaiah chapter 50, where Isaiah says, this is a, in a messianic passage, okay, prophetic passage. I offered my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who tore my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spittle because 
The Lord God helps me. I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. So that's an even... That's an expansion of the little Hebrew phrase, to set your face like flint. I mean, flint's like the hardest stone they knew of at the time. It's to sharpen your, your, your uh, metal on, you know, how they make your sword sharp. The old flint stone, right? And so, that's, that's firm, to set your face like that. That means I am, I am determined. And it's in other places, too, this sort of foreshadowing. You know what they call, by the way, the Messianic passages in Isaiah? We, we, we know them because they're in some hymns and everything. We, we, we sing them Christmas time, like Handel's Messiah, you know, like the Hallelujah Chorus and everything. And a lot of that stuff comes right from these Messianic passages in Isaiah. For unto us a child is given unto us. You know, they call those, one of the names for those passages is, you ever heard the phrase, the suffering servant? That's, that's a name for those. That tells you something. The suffering servant. Now contrast suffering servant with glorious chosen anointed king who reigns. I mean, so right in, in the moment of that passage in Isaiah or in uh, Luke 9, the disciples are thinking about the glorious reign of the anointed king, which is true. That's, that is going to happen. But that's not why they're going to Jerusalem just yet. That's not what awaits in Jerusalem, I mean, in the immediate sense. It's the suffering servant Messiah that was prophesied. That's what's waiting. And so this theme of today, the theme we're looking at here with Jesus is what I'd call courageous obedience. It's courageous obedience. That's that's a that's a uh, that's a theme that is not just in his life, but it certainly is here in Lent. The notion that here he is, he's got, he, he's coming down to the culmination of his time on earth. And he knows what that means. And it ain't pretty. Jesus' life was one of perfect obedience to the Father. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. Now the obedience that is required of a believer, the average person, the obedience to God, that's hard enough, is it not? I mean, it's not easy, is it? Are you, you, you obey perfectly? Is that the story of your life? I have maintained perfect obedience. Yeah, show of hands. Liar! Do not lie in the Lord's house. Repent! No, we know better than that. We, we, we have not at all, at all, lived lives of perfect obedience. But he did. I mean, just the obedience we are attempting to maintain on the road of being followers in the, sanct, you know, the sanctification process. That's hard. Hard are the obedience. Now imagine perfect obedience, trying to attain perfect obedience. Now imagine uh, perfect obedience on a road that ends on a cross. And you're just going to stay on that road? Like uh, you, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're just going to go obediently right into the jaws of it like a lamb to the slaughter? That is what he did. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. He became obedient. Now, obedience is hard enough. He became obedient to death. It's not just, I want you to do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. We think of religion in such terms. Yes, yes, yes. These are the do's and these are the don'ts. But obedient to death, you will go and die. And not just even, even any death, but the worst death. 
the most humiliating, painful, and excruciating, and debasing death, death on a cross. That, of course, is far more than a casual obedience, isn't it? That's a lot more than just a, a sort of a flippant, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll go ahead and follow this way. What he's doing in that passage, and indeed throughout his life, to maintain perfect obedience, to be the suffering servant, what he's doing takes an, a powerful inner strength. It takes an iron will. It takes a kind of resolve to do it. He set his face to really just walk right into the teeth of suffering and death. Imagine the courage that it takes for that. And if you step back, you know, when you think about it, a whole lot of obedience to God, most of it really, takes courage. You can't just do it casually. It doesn't just come naturally. Does it for you to obey God and to deny yourself? Is that just is that just your automatic default position? Do you just do it instinctually? Of course you don't. It is not in your nature to do it instinctually. It is in your nature to do the opposite. And so it takes a kind of courage to go through the scripture at all of the people that were asked to obey and what they were asked to do to obey. And it wasn't easy. Just go back to the beginning. To Abraham. Remember what he was asked to do? With, with, to take his miracle son, the son of promise, up to the mountain? Is that an easy th- is, that, that's a, is that an easy ask? Are you kidding? That's a real test of obedience. Will you do this? I am asking you to do this. Will you obey this? But as we read, Abraham believed God. He trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness because he trusted God. He thought, I have no idea why he would ask this. And this is an incredible and seems bizarre thing to be asked. And it it would be the hardest thing in the world for me to do it. But I just trust him that he's got his reasons. So So he proceeded forward to carry through. So that took some courage. Moses needed some courage, didn't he? For him to obey meant that he had to go back into the heart of the capital of really the world as he knew it, where he was frankly still a wanted man, more or less, and to go all the way deep into the heart of it and confront to his face the all-powerful ruler, as far as the eye could see, the Pharaoh, who was worshipped as a god. So you're going to go right to you're going to go right into Lord Vader's uh, lair. I mean, like you're going you're not just going to the outskirts. You are going to march right in and confront directly uh, the most intimidating figure on the planet that you know of. And you're going you're gonna to give him some demands that I have. I don't know. Do you think that might take a little courage? His obedience required a lot of courage. Moses made some excuses just to try to get off the hook. No, 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 no. You don't understand. Me. I don't, I don't, I don't talk. I don't talk real good. 
Yeah, whatever. I, I don't even know. I, I can't. No, I don't. Uh, no, not me. I mean, I got the wrong guy. Because it was a scary thing to have to do. And you see this over and over. Remember Esther. Before uh, before long, uh, while we are celebrating Lent and looking forward to resurrection, you know, the, uh, um, the practicing Jews will celebrate Purim. Purim, right? And they will celebrate a heroic act by Esther. What did she have to do? Well, she ha- also had to go confront. She ha- or not confront so much, but she had to gain an audience with the king of Persia. Persia is the ruling empire, and she's not even Persian, so she's walking on thin ice, and she knew that. And she was breaking some protocols, but everything was on the line. She had to do it. You see this kind of thing over and over again. The early church, the early church knew that in order for them to be obedient to what they were called to do, they were risking the wrath of an empire. And an empire that was sort of known, especially for handling dissenters and lawbreakers uh, without any mercy. Like, you know, you know how they say sometimes, you know. It'd be bad enough going to prison, but if you had to go to prison, there's some places you'd rather go to prison. You know what I mean? Like, which 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 country you want to go to prison in? See, not all prisons are the same. If, you, if you're going to run afoul of the authorities and be, fall on the wrong side of the law, I can think of pretty much most kingdoms and empires and governments in history that I'd rather run afoul of before the Roman Empire. Because they just didn't play. But the Christians knew if we're going to be obedient and they've made our religion illegal, but we're going to keep doing it faithfully, we're going to take this risk. So the true believers, every time they met together, it was an act of courage. They all knew people that were already dead and gone because they had been caught. We all know that missionaries today, a lot of them around the world, will obey a call to go to places where, in some cases, the risk is tremendously great. And they put their necks out there. And, I mean, not every place. It just depends. But if that's, if that's where you're sure that you're called to, and you're going to obey... You're gonna, it's going to take some courage on your part to do it. You're not just going to sort of casually go, oh, mm, I don't know, like we decide on what we'll have for lunch later. You don't just make the this decision's not casually made. I go here, I go there, I do this, I do that. What are we, how, what are we going to do today? Do I go into the heart of a dangerous foreign place where they might kill me? I don't know. See how I feel later today. This is not a casual decision. This is a very sobering decision. And if you're going to obey that call and you're going to do that, brother, you got courage. And lots of missionaries do. That's why we have why I have such respect for so many of them. I know I know what they're putting on the line. Well, what about you? I mean, I mean, what about me? Maybe we're off the hook. Maybe this is these are all stories about other people. Sort of more super spiritual than we are. It doesn't really apply to me, right? 
So we can we we're we're in the gallery. You know what I mean? We're we're just in the stands. Like when you watch if you watched a gladiator's fight, you would think, ooh, that's gotta hurt. <laughs> He's gonna feel that tomorrow, but I'm up here. I'm up here in the cushy seats, so it's it, it, you know, it ain't nothing to me. But in fact, it is something to you. Because you know, you're not just in the peanut gallery. You're not just a spectator sport. The fact is, there is an application. We talk about the courage that people have. Oh, sure, it took courage for Jesus to head into Jerusalem. He knew what was waiting there. It took courage for those early Christians, you know, to meet and gather, knowing full well what risk they took and what the Romans did. But that was them, and, you know, here we are. Jesus said something pretty sobering. To, to, to pretty much anyone listening, John chapter 9, he said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. What is he saying there? This is, he's saying this to all of them. Not just to a special elite class. So there's no one just in the stands saying, this doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply. Do you follow Christ? Then you do it in full obedience or you don't do it. You take up a cross. His words. His words, not mine. This means that we set our face. That's, That's the only real mode of following that the Bible knows about. The Bible doesn't have... Tier memberships, gold star members, or the true followers, and they give everything. But you can also kind of go for this, you know, you, you can have the bronze membership. That'll require, you know, like 60% church attendance, you know what I mean, whatever. That's not, there, there's nothing in scripture that talks about that. We only read about all and all or none. Like the old hymn says, though none go with me. I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. It's wild because, you know, we use the term Christian uh, to refer to those who follow Christ. It's, it's, it can be misleading because we use, the, we use the, uh, <clears throat> the, the same construction to refer to people who think like other certain people, a school of thought. You know, like someone could say, well... You know, I subscribe to I, I subscribe to Newtonian physics. You know, okay. Well, that's all. Well, good. I, I'm I'm a Copernican when it comes to uh, when it comes to the uh, the uh, the planet and the sun. So, which means I don't, I'm not a flat earther, and I do think that uh, we revolve we revolve around the sun, and not the opposite. I'm Copernican. I'm Newtonian, right? I believe in Keynesian economics. I don't know if I I don't know if I believe in that or not. I'm not sure enough. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying? Like we we name certain points of view after these people that came up with them. That's not what we mean by Christians. It's a different use of that of that kind of a term. It doesn't mean I just happen to subscribe to the views of Jesus on these particular matters. I just subscribe to his school of thought when it comes to this field or something. No, no, that's not how that works. Christian is all-encompassing. 
according according to the biblical understanding of it. It's all or none. It means you're in fully, 100%. And someone could, you know, this is the kind of message that sometimes people think, boy, you know, I came not to hear this to church. I came for encouragement today. Come on, where's my encouragement? Where's the hope? This sounds, whoo, this sounds dreary. Well, now, remind you of a few things. First of all, we are in Lent. The season that, that does focus on these things. So we don't gloss over. Uh, you, in fact, it would be meaningless to celebrate a resurrection because what does a resurrection imply? Or what, what does it not just imply? Logically require and entail. Death! <laughs> so, it's, so, so there's no getting around it anyway. But secondly, you know, it is not just we, we who follow Christ. It is not just us. We're not the only ones who have challenges in life and difficulties. See, everybody does. It's not as if, oh, Christian, you follow Christ, you take on a road that's not necessarily easy. It will have its challenges. Oh, but everyone else on the broad road, they just sail through life, no problems. That's not true. Have you lived around here with people much? Have you noticed the world, how it's going? No, that broad road leads to destruction. Many are those who are on it, and their lives aren't their lives are no picnic. They're not dancing down the primrose path of ease any more than Christians are. But see, we exchange one hard road for a different hard road. For different reasons and in different ways. Yeah, oh, we have hurdles, we have obstacles, it's not easy. So does the unbelieving world. But they don't have hope in their problems. They don't have a clear, coherent way forward. They don't have an answer. And they don't have something over the horizon that promises to make things right. They're looking at, are we the only ones looking at death someday and they're not? No, they're looking at death too. What's the difference? We're looking past death. We're looking at resurrection. Are they? they don't have that. That's the difference. We all mourn. But some mourn as those who have no hope. So, it's, the, it's a wise decision to swap one set of hardships for, for a different. And to gain, and to gain one, kind, one kind of happiness, if you will, over another kind of happiness. The famous young missionary once said, famous partly for this quote, named Jim Elliott, famous line. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. You are making some kind of a switch. Jesus calls people. Bonhoeffer said Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But that's not the end. He bids him come and die so that he can really live. Jesus didn't say in that passage, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, the end. He didn't just say, for whoever uh, will save his life will lose it. Isn't that sad? Okay, who's signing up? Who's in? No. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Look, if our holiday season, if this, if these holy days ended on Friday, tenebrae, darkness, the candle is extinguished. We walk out sober, somber, thinking about death, the reality of sin, judgment, all this. And then said, well, until next year, we'll celebrate this again. 
I mean, I don't know that I'm too keen on following that system of belief. It may even be true, but it be pretty, that's, a, that's quite a downer. As worldviews go, that one doesn't offer much. No, no. We reconvene on Sunday, do we not? Amen. So, Jim Elliott, who said those words that I quoted, as some of you know, as a young man, fairly young man, he's like in his 20s or something, flew his small plane into a little strip on a riverbed deep in a jungle in a remote village of a tribe of people completely untouched and unreached, a tribe which he was warned could tended to have some hostilities to outsiders. And he wound up with a spear through his body. Is that a sad story? Well, in one sense. Just like it's a sad story when you read of Jesus in the garden. Because he's in angst. And he's in anguish. And he feels all of the natural forces, all the human forces. Everything you've got in you, he had in him. Because he was human. He's got all that in him to, to avoid uh, certain pain and anguish and death. His body is trying to rebel. <laughs> And in the face of that, he prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As a courageous obedience, the prophet Samuel told Saul, the king at the time, 1 Samuel 15, Saul's like, hey, I, so, you know, Saul's made all these mistakes. He's not listening to God. He's like, I, gave a, I offered some sacrifices. Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice. That is what God wants from you. Don't just throw him a, a little, throw him some sacrifice on the side and think that that's it. To obey and obey fully is what he's after. And sometimes, of course, in truth, truth be told, a lot of times obedience is a sacrifice, a form of sacrifice. For Jesus to set his face, to walk into Jerusalem, was an obedience that and essentially was a sac He was sacrificing himself. He was the perfect lamb walking of his own volition to the place of slaughter. Obediently. So may God give us all uh, the fortitude, the resolve, the courage to obey. <laughs>